0: Gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with our good friend Benjamin George. That makes it George and George here on this Wednesday. Benjamin, how you doing, my friend? How's your day going? What are you What are you thinking about today?
1: Uh, it's another beautiful day here in Colorado. Um, we're finally getting into where autumn is starting to knock at the door, um, which is always a kind of a nice time of year. Trees are changing. Uh, it's so. Yeah, um, my day's been consisting of putting out just a few technical fires because you know apparently people like to hack websites these days. Who knew? Um, and yeah, uh, looking forward to another George and George conversation for this lovely Wednesday the fourteenth.
0: Nice. Yeah, it's interesting on the topic of <laughs> hacking systems. My wife and my daughter were at a at the grocery store and they were in line and they were they had all their stuff. They had some ice cream and a slice of pizza and they get to the front door or the cashier and the whole system goes down. Like, I guess the whole credit card system went down and you know, we don't, she didn't have a debit card or anything. So uh, they're like, Oh no, what are we going to do? And she goes, you know, when I, when I was younger, I used to work at the grocery store and what they would do is they just take one of those carbons and they, they'd swipe your credit card like that. So they had the number, but in today's Mm -hmm. world, they don't, they don't have those carbon. They don't even have that old little machine anymore. You know?
1: Well, they do still have them in some places in South America. (laughs) There's a couple places where you're like, oh yeah, we can do a credit advancement and they pull out this big old thing, set it on the counter and they start ripping yeah. through the carbon paper and you go, oh, I haven't seen that in a while. And then you start to get a little questionable. You're like, "Yeah, no, I don't even know if that process still works. Are you guys sure about this?
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's classic, man. Yeah, and it kind of brings me to a, one of the topics I wanted to talk about today and that's you know, looking into the future so that you can understand what's happening in the past and I, for me this this has been like a a good way like a good thought exercise a good mental exercise that i do sometimes so that i can understand where i'm at and if it's if it's with business it's like where is it that i want to be in 10 years like what is this podcast what should it be and then i envision that and that allows me to understand what i need to do to get there and i'm wondering if you if you have ever used that technique or have you do you use a similar technique or what are some of the techniques you use to, to forecast the future? I've definitely used that technique,
1: but I also use, you know, uh, you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. Uh, And, you know, you might just end up walking in circles if you never knew where you started. Right. Uh, Right. It's, and, and by and large, extrapolating that to, you know, just like the greater human condition, you know, has been kind of an exercise for me over the past some years. Uh, especially delving into anthropology and, you know, ancient history and indigenous histories and things like that, because <clears throat> it's really interesting when you start to correlate all of this information, how, how many parallels there are, how many pieces of information actually exist through the swath of all of them, even if they're, you know, the words are a little changed or the context a little bit different, the overarching premises are still there. And I think it's, you know, from a, what are you trying to do on a personal level? It's very important to, you know, understand your choices and what you're going to do next. But I think if we're kind of looking at a larger picture of where we're going and just, you know, predicting the future, um, whether that be if you're just trying to look at it from a business perspective, you know, is, uh, what's going to be the next big thing. Right. Uh, Do I, you know, is it going to be a a crypto related thing or is that is that ship sailed? you know, what's the next thing after that? Is it VR? Is it this metaverse? Is it all these things? And finding a way to rationalize and predict where those things are going, uh, you can't do it without a reflection of the past. I think, But then, you know, the envisioning of the futures, you know, the other aspect of that. If I'm looking at it and I, and I know where, where we came from and I know where I want to go, now I can devise the steps I need to get there, or at least an idea. They're not going to be perfect. They're going to change. That's just the kind of the nature of things. You know, we we make our best guess, we make an estimate, and then we move towards that. Um, <clears throat> so I, I do it all the time, like, uh, for instance, in crypto trading. So I have an automatic crypto system that I've developed that trades on on active markets and it's constantly weighing the past versus the present and then doing calculations on that based with other things like sentiment analysis and whatnot of what people are talking about in the zeitgeist and then combining that into kind of an algorithm to decide if I'm going to buy now or sell now so I think there's a lot of ways that this all applies and you know I think it's probably one of the more fundamental ways that we kind of uh, plot out our passing in life.
0: Yeah. On that topic, like what, where do you, do you see, do you think that maybe Bitcoin has kind of bottomed out right now and we're seeing a rebound or what, what, what is your take on that, on the Bitcoin maneuverability right now?
1: Well, so when Bitcoin first came around, it really was acting as a hedge against um, what was happening in the greater now as bitcoin has been more widely adopted by especially institutional investors uh that hedge is kind of gone um you know we're seeing similar effects with like gold for instance gold was typically thought as of a hedge against market you know fluctuations but yet it hasn't really worked out as a hedge in this current climate either uh so it's I think there's a lot to unpack and you could approach this from a lot of different angles. Um, but I think Bitcoin has, because it's just been beating on this like 19 to $20,000 range for so long, uh, what typically happens when you have something like that happen is you, you you have the people who are willing to accumulate or just start accumulating more until their their kind of position lets other people know that, hey, These people aren't going away. This is the price point. Um, And then you have these, you know, you have bull markets kick off. Uh, I think a lot of the reason you're not seeing Bitcoin going lower and it might be that bottom is because you did have a lot of um, like, uh, who was it?
0: Uh, What country? El Salvador. El Salvador. El Salvador
1: just adopted it as as legal tender. Um, There was a couple other countries talking about it as legal tender. Uh, And when that transition happened, I think Bitcoin kind of lost its hedge against kind of your fiat, fiat debt based markets. <clears throat> and now it's kind of finding a new value point in the marketplace. And so I think we're witnessing that right now. Um, I expect it to bounce around at this level, at least until after midterms, if, we're, if people are looking to invest. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I think so. I I, I... I'm curious that because they Bitcoin has a few am I am I right in saying that Bitcoin has a futures market now?
1: Well, yeah. Uh so the way it works is exchanges, which are just privatized companies, will set up different types of markets. Um, and you can there's future markets. There has been since many, 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 many years ago. Okay. Uh and so you do have a lot of people taking out you know margin positions on this and recently the whole reason that bitcoin kind of came down in value this last time was more related to uh a different um a different cryptocurrency that had been over leveraged and institutional investors took advantage of it and crashed it out and it was they wiped out some 600 billion dollars in value roughly speaking um and and it was, uh, it's kind of articulated, like, you know, we know the players, we know, you know, who did the loans, what markets it were. Uh, and typically in, in normal markets, that's when you have like an SEC, right? But yeah. because Bitcoin is the way it is, and all these private companies are in multiple different jurisdictions, uh, you, you don't have any governing body that can really kind of affect what is and what is not, uh, you know, a good practice when it comes to these types of situations. So it's a very interesting dichotomy, you know, multi-dichotomy of, of, of factors that kind of weigh into this.
0: Yeah, I, I was curious. I know that, you know, in the last few years, like there's this, this incredible grift of paper gold, you know, like you can buy all this paper gold. There's like, there's, I heard something crazy. Like there's for every ounce of real gold, there's like a thousand versions of paper gold or something, something similar like that and that i think stems from the futures market is is it possible yeah. to do some is, is it not possible to do something like that for bitcoin like you can't sell paper bitcoin can you or future bitcoin that would cause the system to do the same thing
1: um, no technically you can't from bitcoin's perspective now if i'm a if i'm a third party institution i can easily say that yeah we're going to sell you bitcoin futures and we might not have the assets to cover that in in case of liquidation that um, you just have to kind of accept these private companies' word for it, that they can maintain these, these markets. Uh, and some of them, you know, they go through processes to have verification, they have third party audits, there, there is processes for this stuff. However, at the end of the day, you know, um, without 100% transparency, it's still a little bit of the roll of the dice in the blood. Um, especially if you have huge market swings, you know, kind yeah. of similar to like the, the housing crash, right? All of a sudden, somebody realized, oh, I can bet against these subprime mortgages, and they're all about to go belly up. And uh, let me go ahead and make that bet. And then all of a sudden, you had a lot of private settlement coming in saying, hey, we can't honor that. Just to let you know where you accept this. And you know, there's a good story about that, the big short, right?
0: Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> uh,
1: so, yeah, when you have these third-party companies that are just private companies, they're not directly tied to Bitcoin. They're not directly tied to any sort of other financial institutions necessarily. And they kind of make their own rules. And their their sale is is that yeah, we have the assets to cover this in case of liquidation. But often cases the reality is not that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember when um right when Block Five first came out, I was like, well look at this. These guys are offering they were offering crazy like a 20% Month you to know, month return. Yeah, yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? You know, and <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and of course you want to get in there and, and and set up your account. And then all of a sudden you see Celsius kind of go down and you start realizing, you know, there was there was so much talk from the institutional investors, and there was so many people that wanted things to fail. And you know, whenever there's that kind of money, there's greed involved. And I'm sure that the the risk taking for a lot of people, whether it was an institution or an individual. It was worth it because I mean, if you if you can mm-hmm. if they could loan it out and give you twenty percent, what were they making? You know, it, it had to be incredible amounts of money, and it it brings me to this idea of, you know, it's it's fascinating to see the birth of something like that, to see the birth of Bitcoin, to know that we were there when that happened. It must have been similar to maybe after Bretton Woods when the dollar exploded. You know, <laughs> and it's 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 interesting. So I'm wondering if if we can. If we can use our forecasting ideas, and this is just no one can really forecast the future, but we can pretend that we know some similar path. So if 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 we can if we can compare Bitcoin to the dollar, mm-hmm. is it possible that we see, let's say El Salvador, they've already taken it up. Let's say that Russia decides to start taking it for some sort of imports or exports, maybe India. Is it possible to see Bitcoin become the world reserve currency?
1: um i mean if if all things were equal i think yes <clears throat> the reality of the situation is all things are not equal mm-hmm. um because you have vested interests in this debt based fiat system that is deep in all industry uh so for fiat to lose its peg kind of as you know world currency and then oh. for crypto to be adopted uh means the liquidation of magnitudes of debt, right? Uh, and the people who own that debt are unlikely to let that come to fruition without putting up a fuss. Uh, so now at the same time you do have where settlements are now international with cryptocurrencies and they're becoming pretty instantaneous. You've had a couple of cryptocurrencies kind of let's play the fiat game and the central banking system game like an XRP which right. is say, let, let us be your settlement layer and we'll just, you know, we'll figure out all the details. You don't have to maintain the network. Uh, and then you have, you know, Bitcoin, which had no interest in being a part of all of that. And it's just kind of its own sovereign thing. Um, but because of that sovereignty, it's continuing to be adopted. Because at the end of the day, nobody, you know, even even Western Union or other remittance companies, like, you know, you would go send something, A, you're paying an arm delay. But B, there was always a chance that it could be seized, right, for whatever reason, especially if you're moving money into a country that, you know, has a very authoritarian government and they're in control of that economic system like Venezuela or something like that. You know, uh, moving money into Venezuela, you can't do it over those electric channels. They're going to take a huge chunk of that stuff. But you could do it over the, the digital channels, the blockchain channels, and you, you know, pay the maybe a buck in fees. And then, you know, you send that $500 and the person gets $499. Um, <clears throat> there's great power and value in that. And I think that kind of is continuing to fuel the everyday person adoption of, of these types of systems. Um, now we're seeing where they're running into the head of, um you know, nation states. And now all these nation states want a central bank digital currency. China has one started last June. Uh, United States has mandated one to be done by 2025. Canada is already rolling out theirs. Uh, you know, so the, the writing's on the wall, in essence, where these people want to go. They want to take these digital currencies and make them a centralized system, which actually defeats the underlying premise of Bitcoin itself yeah. and why it became so popular was its decentralized nature Uh and still is you know to a large degree so you know kind of predicting where this is going to fall out 2025 is kind of the the line in the sand for these central bank digital currencies. so i think well by 2025 you're going to see a lot of these kind of roll out um to the tune where you know hey download the us dollar you know central bank wallet and you're going to get $500 a month yeah and, you know there's going to be caveats to that and the the tos that you sign for that's probably going to be quite aggressive uh you know <laughs> i have a suspicion <clears throat> that these are going to be linked to you know kind of the the world economic forum the international monetary fund where they say that you're going to own nothing like it well, how are you going to own nothing like it Well, you're going to have to be supplied with something and I think this is that supply solution that they envision. I'm highly speculative uh, (laughs) of how well it's going to come off, if you will, Uh, and and by that I mean I I, I don't think it's going to work at all. Uh, I think it'll work in larger municipalities like huge city centers where you do have uh, you know, nobody can afford bread anymore or they can't afford the dollar six per kilowatt hour for electricity to to run their apartment. I think that's where you'll see the adoption sim- simply because of me.
0: Yeah, out of, <clears> out of necessity comes, <throat> you know, out of necessity comes the answer. It's the old problem reaction solution. And that solution is this central bank digital currency or or, you know, it's a it's a it's a. Payment for someone who is desperate, and I, I think you'll see it probably. Like if you look at what's happening in, in um, you know, some of these third world countries, I, I was just saw this this little report that talked about Peru and Argentina and Bangladesh and and you know even Sri Lanka, where most people have seen they ran their they ran their president out of town, like he left on a military plane and stole a bunch of money. Now these people are going to the IMF with their handout, wanting billions of dollars, and like what a perfect opportunity to try out your digital system right here okay Mm -hmm. here's here's our new digital system we're going to give you the money but here's all the caveats Mm -hmm. and it you know it it, you know and then you start it's not too far of a stretch to think that oh wow there's not going to be any food coming up this winter oh there's not going to be any gas coming up this winter you know and I, i once heard it said that before someone can help you off the ground, they got to beat you to the ground. Like, you're not going to ask for help until you're laying on the ground. You don't need a hand up until you're laid out flat. Mm -hmm. It sure seems to me that, you know, all these sanctions that we've put on Russia are in a way sanctions we've put on ourselves. You know, we are forcing ourselves to pay, you know, five bucks at the pump, you know, and that's in a country where, you know, you don't make that kind of money when in a country mm-hmm. where you're already struggling, you know, you're paying four bucks at the pump. You you have the same thing that happened with the, uh, this, what was that? The, the Middle East spring or something like that, or the, uh, Arab spring, the Arab spring, you can kind of yeah. see that coming back around <laughs> again, where there's not enough money for food and people are beginning to struggle. And, you know, it makes me wonder if, You know, as we were talking in the future, we forecast the future to look back on the past. Are we looking at the crisis before the war right now? What do you think? Well, I think
1: there's definitely an angle there that suggests yes. Um, You know, and I think it's a much more multifaceted kind of jewel, if you will. Um, You know, and we can look at things like this whole, the whole climate change situation which you know, disregarding the actual science of it, right. and the climate change of it, looking at the policies that are being enacted versus what's actually possible in reality from terms of like global productions um, resources, resource count, uh, things like that. And if you if you just look at those numbers, you know there it's it's a non-start. you know, the amount of energy that we consume, the amount of consumption to create, renewable energies, even. Um, All of these numbers are so, you know, you're talking 85% of the energy production has to be used for this in order to maintain the world that we're at. Whereas you have renewable type infrastructure only supports, you know, five to 15%, depending on the country. And there are some countries like, oh, we ran 100% for renewable energy. And but that's a bullshit answer, too, because you didn't. How were all the solar panels made? Where did all the generators come from? How did the wind turbines get manufactured? Those are all extracted via heavy machinery out of the earth at a massive expense to the environment, if you're talking just the chemical processes that we have to do. I mean, just look at the lithium fields, right? Yeah. I mean, they're they're so toxic. Uh, But yet, you know, renewable energy is our solution. Which don't get me wrong, I'm all about renewable energy. I love, uh, you know, re- one of my passions is energy. But at the same time, you have to be realistic with these things, and I don't think we're being realistic on purpose from some aspects of this of this problem. Because if we're not realistic about it, then nobody can actually judge us. And then you know these mandates come, and these proclamations come, and you know these you know agreements come, and all of this stuff, and it's not supported by science it's not supported by um you know where how we're going to offset the cost we don't actually have a real solution for this we just have declarations we just have politicians standing on stages and waving their arms or their fists
0: (laughs) yeah exactly you know that brings me to this idea of privatization and government and you know i get torn sometimes and let me give you an example of a area of privatization that makes me a little bit queasy. Born in California, I was in California when Enron mm-hmm. was a big force. My sister is an investigator and she cut her teeth on the Enron scandal. And for those people that don't know, Enron was this energy company that what just happened to be at the right place at the right time when when electric <coughs> companies were, you know, they became they were no longer public utilities, they you were able to get in on the game. And they took over a large swath of the California energy market. And what happened was, you know, because it was a public works, it was running on, it was running the way governments run. And it probably wasn't the most efficient place, but a private company, their job is to make it profitable. So all of a sudden they had people that were shutting down plants so that they could charge people like emergency. Yeah. Way more money. Oh, Oh no, this, this thing went down. Now we got to charge you five times. You know, it's like, it's like surge pricing in a way. Yep. And they figured out, well, well how come there's all these rolling blackouts? You know what the hell's going on? And all of a sudden one person figures out, "Hey, these guys are just scamming everybody." Mm-hmm. And then they they realize it wasn't just this place, but it was all up and down California. And Enron was making tons of money. They were using this incredible way called mark to market where they were they were judging themselves and forecasting profits and then mm-hmm. they would use surge pricing to blow it up even more. And the reason I bring up Enron is because they would have people, they would have rolling blackouts at the most opportune time, which is the time everybody was using their stuff. And isn't it interesting that right now the companies in California are introducing a very similar idea. My my family lives in California and they recently got these notices that say, "Hey, you got to cut short, you got to cut your energy use at this time. There might mm-hmm. be blackouts." And it, I don't have a graph or an infographic But I bet you could lay Enron's surge pricing and Enron's cutting off and rolling blackouts right over the top of California's property and and the new company's procedures today. And I bet you they would line up exactly perfect. And when you look at it, when you step back and go, wait a minute, they're not trying to be green. They're just raping people for profits. That's all they're doing, and they're doing Mm -hmm. it under the guise of being green. Hey, Mm -hmm. none of you – None of you people can use your electricity between five and seven because that's when everybody uses it and it's not profitable for us. Don't you guys yeah. understand that we have to replace <laughs> things when that happens? We gotta send people out to fix shit. Come on, man. Why don't I you guys, guys use it at midnight? Now. Yeah, yeah exactly. You How are we supposed what? to beat the last year's profits when you dummies use this? Now we have There's shareholder
1: still- <laughs> responsibility, sir.
0: <laughs> have you have you no shame? You know, like it's it and it blows my mind to think like. And then the more that I started thinking about that, the more that I'm like, that's the fucking exact same model that Enron used, that these guys are using. And why wouldn't it be? It was terrific profits. It was, it was, Profit. it's incredible. Yeah. That's their
1: charge as, as a private invested in company that's yeah. beholden to shareholders. Their first, you know, their first line on their item list of what we have to satisfy is shareholders. Yeah. And so, you know, to the, to your larger question, I think is, you know, yeah, I think it is. Uh, there are certain industries that um, having them as for profit is going to inherently and fundamentally be against the common individual. Um, one of these things, media. Yeah. Another one, healthcare, communications. Uh, electricity, anything that we would consider kind of one of these fundamental things that kind of are the, the pillars of society, to have those set as for-profit institutions, uh, I mean, I don't, you know, we can look at the evidence and the evidence suggests that it doesn't work out too well, except for the people who are the shareholders in that scheme. Uh, the, the common individual is going to get ripped across the coals. Yeah. Uh, and so, unless you have some sort of shift, and you know, it's not like we don't have the framework for this, right? We have nonprofit companies. Now, that's a shitty framework in and of itself, riddled with other problems. <laughs> but the idea is, is that why would you have pillars of society, pillars of community as a for profit industry? What sort of madness is that? You are going to take advantage of people along the way there is no other way to to compete in that marketplace once you do that so yeah it's um, I think one of many problems that we're seeing fracturing at the scale of society today is is having these for-profit institutions uh, that are you know very fundamental in, in the way that our society works uh, and and yeah, you're not going to get away from it easily, right? You're not going to be like, okay, healthcare is not for profit anymore. See, everybody will go, oh, well, shouldn't doctors make money? And that's not the way it works. In a nonprofit, everybody's still getting paid, there's just no shareholders who get paid from the profits of the business itself. Everybody still gets a salary. Everybody still gets, you know, and if you look at the numbers, a lot of the salaries for positions in nonprofits exceed that of the private space. Um, So, you know, it's not like we're without ideas on, you know, and structures on how to fix this stuff. But at the end of the day, the, the people who are lobbying for. These rules and regulations and people who you know appoint chairs in these committees and the SECs and FBAs and all of this stuff in our world, that's all for profit. And it's generated by groups of people who are interested in maintaining and growing their profit.
0: Yeah. It it's fascinating me to think on some levels, it seems that things could be fixed with. you know, I hate, it seems to me that things could be a new, a new sort of contract could be written up and things could be fixed, but there's no will because the people that hold the power, there's no incentive for them to do that. But if we just change the way we looked at healthcare, like maybe people should be, doctors could get paid on the people they save and are healthy. Like maybe that could be an incentive instead of, you know, the insurance model where you know you you apply to the insurance company and then they decide whether they're going to pay it out or not. But I think by changing some of the incentives, you could fundamentally change the health and well-being of a society.
1: Absolutely. And that was kind of, you know, back to Bitcoin a little bit. That was you know, that was kind of the idea of that model. You change the incentive structure so that even the selfish players in the game are beholden to the other players in the game. You know, who might not be selfish, but collectively have value or use case for that for for this service in this case. Uh, So, you know, those incentive structures do need to be wrong. Otherwise, you know, we already know where this is going. We've watched the richest people get richer and richer and richer with the promise of trickle down economics for the past 50 years. And, you know, if you were to take a subsection of people 50 years ago versus subsection of people now, I, the people who are at the top are, you know, 100 times more wealthy than they were 50 years ago, uh, which is dangerous, right? Yeah. We know this. We know that when a small group of people accumulate the vast majority of wealth, they typically have incentive to keep those structures in play. And not only do they have incentive, now they have the ability to put all means on the table to do so.
0: Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna comment on the part of being dangerous. Like, you know, on some level, that concentration, when you concentrate anything too heavily somewhere, Mm. it doesn't hold. You know, if it's, if it's a way or it becomes volatile. Yeah. And, and, you know, whether it's a, a chemical reaction that it explodes, or if it doesn't hold, it falls through the floor. And you could, I think that that's, there's something to be said about that. Now, I was listening to a speech by Lyndon LaRouche, who recently died in 2019. And, and he, I guess this, this guy had run for president eight times. He had been thrown in jail. And his main message was the idea of a corporate slash ruling class of people that are that do nothing but speculate. And he, he gave this very elegant speech just about how, look, these people were in Venice, and then they moved over to Europe. And now they use the American military to just to speculate on entire countries just to go in, speculate, and extract all the resources using money that's not even theirs. And he got back to this idea of of just a small group of people that are becoming richer and richer and richer. But the question is, how much longer can this group of people extract resources when when there's nothing left to extract or, you know, when you look at if you if you own everything, you look out your window and you're surrounded by a gutter. Like, what's the point? Well, I think
1: they could continue to distract a lot. I mean, it, it, look what's coming down the pike. They want to individualize yeah. people's carbon content that's being added to the environment, which is ridiculous in many facets, but you know, they've estimated that that market's going to be a $20 trillion market. Wow. That's why they're pushing for this. Because if they can get everybody to download the app and be a part of this shenanigan, uh, then they figure in the next, I think it was 20 to 30 years, they'll be able to extract 20 trillion dollars of value from that marketplace alone. So in terms of speculation, that's how these people think about these things. That's how they think about these markets. They, they you know it's not a, it's not a human aspect. There is no humanistic aspect to this. This is, oh, we're going to make billions and trillions of dollars. That's not and in that number, there's not a little, attachment to every individual that that's going to impact. They don't think that way. If you thought that way, I think it becomes pretty quickly untenable to maintain that position unless you're just in, you know, 100% sociopath, which there are those too. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, I always think about, I had a conversation with our mutual friend, Dan Hawk, who's a member of the first nations. And, uh, you know, we were talking about, he was telling a story that I had also read in a, a book called Black Elk Speaks about how, you know, when when the settlers came across, you know, Manifest Destiny and they were pushing some of the, the Indians into reservations, they had come up with these contracts and they were like, mm-hmm. look, we're going to buy the land. And some of the indigenous people are like, you can't buy, you the, can land, buy the land. It. The land. Yeah, you can't buy mm-hmm. it. And what I told Dan was like, "This, I think the same thing is happening now. They're like, we're going to buy the air. You know, we're going to buy the most abundant thing on the planet that nobody owns. We're It's a blue ocean strategy. We're creating mm-hmm. this whole new thing and we're going to own the air. And then you have to pay us for it. Like on some level, you have to admire the creative, <laughs> the creative, the, the balls on these guys. You, like,
1: You do. I mean, you have to, you have to give credit where credit's due.
0: Right, right. I'm going to buy the it's, air.
1: It's awesome. You know, and to that point, Nestle and water. Yeah. You remember, I, took you know, in the '80s, there was water everywhere. There was water yeah. fountain everywhere. Nobody paid for bot. There was no fucking such thing as bottled water. Yeah. Fast forward to 2000. Everybody's drinking bottled water. Yeah. And and Coca Cola, Nestle, the parent companies of all these places are raping countrysides. Yeah. Raping countrysides. Not even that. They make these insidious deals with governments that allow them to do this and then charge local people around for their encumbrance or their, you know, getting rid of their waste and all of these different things. And it, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, evil, if you want to quantify it as, you know, when you're, which I would quantify as, you know, the removal of other people's freedoms. uh, These people are egregious in all of their actions with, uh, you know, it, and it's similar to the hey, you can buy the land. Oh, well, you can yeah. buy the water. And it's like no, I'm pretty sure the water is right there. Yeah, I'm sure I can go stick a straw in the water and drink the water. Oh yep. no, we'll find you for that. We yep. own that water. I'm like, yeah, I don't think we do. <laughs>
0: And, and then, even when they don't, they, they just have their security with them, like this guy will yeah, shoot you.
1: <laughs> exactly. And then it becomes and then it becomes a show of force. It's like, yeah. oh, you don't think we do? Though this guy with the gun says I do. How many guns do you have? Yep. Uh and unfortunately that is fundamentally the conversation of the planet right now. Because, yeah, even though we try to have this permanent proper civilization, you know, we at the end of the day, it's we're going to do this and you can't tell us not to because we have
0: guns. Yep.
1: And that's not a way to run a civilization in my opinion.
0: Yeah, it's. But... Is that the way it's always been run, though? It's a good question.
1: I think it's probably pretty
0: close to the way it's
1: always been run. Um, you know, the saying might is right isn't replete around the world because it was, you know, a nursery rhyme, Uh, typically the people with the best technology, the greatest might, you know, were able to conquer and did so without discretion, right? Uh, We are at kind of a different day and age where you don't just have wanton marauding military campaigns everywhere, but if you kind of stretch the picture out and look down, you still do a little bit, right? You know, we just don't call them military campaigns. We call them peacekeeping efforts. Mm-hmm. You or know, corporations. Corporations mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, service industries in some places, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, has it always been that way? I, You know, I think it probably has, at least for our recorded history. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that we and by we, I mean those of us in the United States have been insulated for a long time. You know, I think that we, everybody knows the story of Smedley Butler and his book, you know, um, war is a racket. And in that book, he talks about, you know, being a hitman for, you know, the United fruit company and going into all these other countries strictly to extract resources. Like that's the job of the military. And this guy, You know, later in life, he he was asked to do the same thing in the United States. And this is back in the the twenties or thirties, I think. And you know, these corporations said, Look, you're our guy. You've gone to all these countries, you've extracted, helped us, you know, clean up all these places and let us get our foot in the door. We want to do it here. And he's like, Okay, let me let me see. And he got all the names and he went to Congress and he said, Look at these fuckers right here excuse my language he's <laughs> all these people right here want to take over the country man they want me to do it here's all their names you know and nothing really happened you know they, no, they because scolded all those, the people
1: yeah all those people were funded by the majority yeah. of those people yeah. on that list yeah yeah it's um yeah it's it is a travesty but it's it's also interesting too when you look at a larger scale of pictures you know Again, we we take all of this for granted. We've grown up in a time where, by and large, you know, right. workers have had rights. Most everybody's been able to vote. There's, you know, all of these good things from kind of a base level. Where if you were to rewind a hundred years, the majority of those are gone. You know, the times of the Pinkerton Army in, in in the labor wars, which we just celebrated Labor Day, are long forgotten by most people in this country. Um, and you know, so. It was much more egregious in the past. And it is changing. And I think I think it's the advent of global communication, first via the mm. telegraph, uh, and then you know, just continuing on down to now where we're, you know, talking twelve, you know, twelve hundred, sixteen hundred miles apart, probably more than that. And uh <laughs> and, I'm pretty and close. Yeah, and now all of a sudden, you know, we can have these conversations and other people can listen to them and talk about these ideas. And instead of just a group of people feeling that they were wrong, now you have collective groups of people understanding where they were wrong and how they were wrong. And sometimes even why they were wrong. Oftentimes that's heavy. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I do see like some, on the topic of bright spots and, communication kind of being one of them you know i look at demographics and i see ten thousand baby boomers retiring a day and because that group of people were so large and a lot of them to this day still hold significant positions of power if you look at the octogenarians in congress or in government like there's still way too many of them and if you have this giant group of people retiring leaving the workforce you know, they're still buying stuff and you could make the argument that the baby boom, the the majority of the wealth is trapped with the baby boomers. And I get, that's why there's not a whole lot coming down. But on Mm. the bright spot of what I see is if if you just peel back the onion a little bit and you go, man, look at these jobs report. looks like, looks like the job market's pretty hot, even though the federal reserve is doing everything in their power to get people fired to, you know, they, in my opinion, the financial industry is just disgusted that their labor rates in the in the 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 wages for labor are going up. That's a huge problem for them and profits and and whatnot. And maybe you could argue it's bad for the country, but I happen to think it's a good thing. And so, you know, what else is happening with with the labor market is because all of these this big group of people are retiring. There's not enough people to replace them. And so that's why you're seeing wages going high. But on top of that, there's some really big labor contracts coming up. Like look at the rail service right now. These guys have been fighting for a contract for three years. They're getting ready to strike. Like that Mm -hmm. is going to be a problem for people. That is going to continue to be a problem for inflation, for food. But the way around that is to, you know, pay people a little bit more money. You know, the same thing with UPS, like UPS is getting ready to strike and, the international brotherhood of teamsters has a new irish guy in charge like you know and i listened to this guy he's you know i read one of his quotes and i'll be damned if he doesn't sound like a young eugene debs he's talking about listen the teamsters and labor is a contact sport and i'm afraid that people in positions of authority that run corporate offices haven't been hit in a long time and guess what we're going to hit them harder than they've ever been hit in their life you know do he just banging out this crazy rhetoric and it's like, Oh, you know, as we move through these, the circular path of history, you know, I do see the labor movement coming full scale. I do. Mm -hmm. And and it it becomes like the, the door to the corporate world is an aging wooden door. That's hasn't been oiled in a long time. And people are knocking on that door and I, I see it beginning to splinter. And uh, that, that could be another reason why there's so much pressure right now on people for inflation is because they want people scared. They don't want people coming together to to fight the annals of power. They don't want people, especially labor, like labor has the ability to be the third party of p- Republicans, Democrats, and maybe why not a well, labor party? It is in, in a few places. Right. Right, Of course. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, that's you know, it's a really interesting point. And I think it is kind of coming full circle, but, you know, the the other side of that circle is, is that you're you might just move up the next notch and you're going around again. Um, You know, we've. Oftentimes, whenever these things happen, the costs get offloaded to the end consumer. Right. Yeah. So it's like, oh, we're going to we're going to mandate a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage for all labor. Well, guess what happens? Every every meal that you're going to have goes up two dollars. Uh, your price of gas goes up thirty five cents. Uh, you know everything that would be a commodity in their life is the price is going to increase because if they can, they will offset that to the consumer right. every single time. Uh, at the same time, we do see a progression in all of this, right? You know, we're not sitting in the same hobbles uh, of one hundred and twenty right. years ago. Uh, you know, you're not having nine kids to support a single home. Uh, You know, so there is progress to this, Uh, but I think in the larger picture, I think people really expect it changed. It has to all change now when in reality, I think this is a much slower process. Um, There's so much momentum in the system that to change its course just a little bit takes monumental effort. And while that course over time extrapolated does actually move the needle. Um, you know, how much time it takes to actually realize that shift is a different um, a different factor that's often not talked about.
0: You know what? I can't help me try to understand this. So when we look at the average inflation of the the Fed sets a two percent inflation goal. Mm-hmm. So over 10 years, and that's that is according to their numbers. Like let's just pretend that their numbers are accurate and it's it's always two. So in 10 years. <laughs> Your money is worth 20 percent less in 20 years. It's worth 40 percent less. So if you are making a wage, let, let's say you make a wage for a living, and you know you're making 10 bucks an hour. Within 20 years, you're you know you're making five bucks an hour.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and but yet the price of house, everything is going up. Mm-hmm. Your wage is going down, but the price of everything is going up. Mm-hmm. How like how can people possibly? How can the average person possibly make their way in the world with those two opposing forces?
1: Well, the reality of that situation is eventually they can't. Um, And and we're seeing that. Uh, We're seeing where now it is getting to an untenable position where, you know, even if you were to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, you still can't make it in a lot of places yeah. because proportionally those housing markets and all of the cost of living in that area has jumped up, you know, 10 times that. Right. Um, And so this gets back into the Bitcoin thing and why our current economic iteration of how we do things has been considered to be broken by some economists, you know, throughout time. Uh, And I think we're really seeing the pain points of that now you know another of these funny things is we're 30 trillion plus dollars in debt <laughs> To who where's the money where's right. you know in, in the reality is is that there is no money right uh there's just there, no. it, it's it's pieces of paper and zeros on a computer um you know we back it up with the threat of violence or the threat of you not being able to participate in the marketplace um you know and then violence uh and those are um un- unsustainable positions uh you and you know because it is such a monolith of institution you can kick the can down the road effectively mm-hmm. and they have been. um you know they, and there's a lot of economists that have argued ever since you know the 90s on that eventually you can't keep kicking this can it will break it will yeah. break hey, here we are 30 plus trillion dollars in debt we've printed off six trillion dollars the past few years I mean, you know, when does it actually break is more of an interesting question, I think. Um, To say that you can do it indefinitely, I don't think you can. Uh, You know, I think we're already seeing the kind of uh, growing pains of that or shrinking pains of it, if you will. You have the Sri Lankas, you have the, you know, the Netherlands. And while, yes, these are tied to policies relating to green policy and climate and nitrogen use and all this stuff, That is a part of the economy. It's the part of the greater economy of what's happening in the world where these situations are unsustainable. And when they become unsustainable, the solution is to take from the common individual to perpetuate the system. History tells us that the common individual can take that for a very long time until they can't. And when they can't, that's when we see monumental shifts in policy. Uh, you know, we see revolutions. We see, you know, the rise of dictators. We see many other, you know, examples in history that, that I'm pretty sure you're aware of too.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, I I agree, and I I'm hopeful that you know you brought up a really good point that I wish more people. I hope people listening to this will listen to the idea of you know you become. The thing you hate. And if you hate the government, if you want to fight the government, you end up using the only tactics that you know how. And those are usually the same tactics that the government used on you. Mm -hmm. So the way out of a situation like this is to create a new environment, which is a difficult thing to do, but there's ways about it, whether it's using cash or whether it's coming up with a system of trading work for work or somehow rising above the controlled demolition that is being put in front of us, you know, and I, I I think there's solutions there. And I think they're worth talking about, you know, what are some of the ways we can do that? Let me just throw out an easy question for you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, so, you know, I'll I'll cite the free market here. The free market has uh, existed before there was ever any market right? Uh, mm-hmm. The free market was the barter system. Originally. Right. I have two chickens and you have a goat. You don't have any chickens and I need a goat. What do you say? That's the free market in essence, right? Uh, and that's been happening well before we had any sort of tax systems, government systems, legal systems to support it. So to assume that, you know, all of it just crumbles is kind of an absurdity. Because at the end of the day, even if things were actively crumbling, I'm going to go to my neighbor and be like, hey, I see you're growing tomatoes. I got a whole heck of zucchini and my family doesn't want to eat any more zucchini. Let's trade. Um, and so quickly you'll see the reemergence of free market in society. If any of these institutions kind of go by the wayside. In fact, if you look at something like Venezuela, a lot of that started to happen despite their authoritarian stuff. Now you just have people who are like, well, we're kind of a community in the mountainside and everybody's working together now. You know, you yeah. kind of forego property rights. You don't really care who's growing on what, you know, it's just becomes a communal effort. Um, and, but, and that's born out of need. Now, I think if you put some intent behind it and I think if you take the, the reality of that free market, you institute it with things that we know have worked for us well, for the, you know, for collectively, um, and you combine these systems and you, and you take the idea of, you know, well, people should have representation, except that representation shouldn't be me electing George to, so George can go say what Ben wants. The the representations should be George and me both get to say what we want and have a conversation about that. Um and I, you know, just these little fundamental things. I think if you begin to add them together, the parts of society that we can clearly identify are, are beneficial for not just me and you, but the collective whole, and you start to tie these together, that's where you start to find the next iteration of solutions to this.
0: Yeah, it I think. You know, Now that you say that, it brings to mind just thinking about the situation different. It's not so much that we are becoming poor or we're fighting over financial assets. It's that we're fighting over the idea of what money is. And maybe it's not a bad thing for everything to crumble because we're not really fighting over money. We're fighting over the placeholder between the chickens and the goats. Hey, I have two chickens, but I don't have them with me. I'm going to hand you this promissory note This says I'm going to go grab them. Okay. No problem. But I live, I live like a three days travel back. So hold this.
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) So when you look at it from that angle, you know, you're not really losing any assets. The average person may not be losing any assets except that promissory note to pay. And that might not be a bad thing because that's, that's the debt that's holding everybody down are these promissory notes. And so if, Mm -hmm. if, if we're not losing assets, we're not really losing productivity. All we're really, the average person, all you're really losing is who controls the promissory note. And that, that could be anybody. We could just come up with Bitcoin. We have all kinds of placeholders. and But the people that own the rights to that promissory note have the most to lose because they lose all their authority. They lose all their power if that system collapses. And of course they would want to ramp things up and make people scared and you're all going to die, you know, and there's no water. And look at these poor people. But you know, when you, when you look at it like, wow, these poor people over here have to go back to living a life that is a little bit more awesome. That's not a, a slave mentality. You know, when you look at it from that angle, maybe what we're seeing in today's world is a liberation, you know, the same way that we liberate things. Maybe we're having our own liberation. And if you could think about it like that, I think it it kind of lifts just begin to think about wow this currency collapse is pretty liberating like it kind of takes the weight off your shoulders
1: well i think this whole thing is liberating um you know this is the people's the people's movement at the end of the day yeah uh because we have the advent of global communication and the ability to speak to one another so concisely without the the distance being the problem you know uh, we're able to hash out these ideas and now instead of a small collective group of people saying, this is how you should think, now you have a larger collective, it's still small, but a larger collective group of people going, eh, you really think so? <laughs> 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 and yeah, and that's a liberating thing. And I think we're seeing the liberation of all of our institutions and all of this stuff, um, you know, in real time, just at a slow snail's pace. Again, that momentum of the system is so large that, you know, these shifts are, you know, while they are happening and we are seeing reverberations of them, uh, it's it's such a, a monolith of a monstrosity that's moving that it's going to take time to move into the directions that are more highly beneficial for, for a greater number of people. Uh, because, like your point, or for like a Bitcoin or something, the ideas are there. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's not just that we have sustainable agriculture. We have the ability to do make renewable resources, um, but it's not going to be the instant fix. None of these are the instant fix. And I think that stands in stark contrast to the way we run our, our, our governmental societies in, in many countries, especially in the West, where everything gets recycled every four years, two to four years, right? Now, if I'm trying to be a part of that system, my promise has to be become fulfilled in four years. Otherwise I look like a charlatan in a hack. Whereas most all of these solutions are much longer term solutions than a four, eight, even, you know, 20 year implementation. You know, it's going to take effort to move these, move these needles in the right direction. And we are seeing them at certain points, but then at the same time, you have, the, you have the counter to that, which is all of the people who have accumulated wealth and power do not want to relinquish wealth and power, whether that be a corporation, private institutions, family money, you know, um, you know land, landowners, uh, there's a lot of different aspects to this, uh, where I think because of conversations like this and because of what's happening just at the greater stage, more and more people are coming to conversations like this. I think we're seeing and we'll see that in probably the next 23 years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, it kind of brings me joy a little bit to think about all these ideas that are becoming part of the zeitgeist that have been around for a while, but are just actually beginning to manifest. Like there's this term called quiet quitting where people are like, yeah, I'm just not gonna work that hard, really. I don't really want to. And on one level, like you can be like, these people are just lazy, but on another level, you're like, Yeah, I don't, I don't like as a I work as a truck driver and I see a lot of younger kids come in and they're like, dude, I'm not doing this, it sucks. And I'm like, Yeah, it does. You're right. <laughs> Welcome to the You're team, not man. wrong. You're not yeah, wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can make it awesome. Like you can go out and you can meet people and talk to them and get to know them and know their kids, and you can create a great time in your environment, regardless of what you do. But people are right in that the amount of work that is people like my, my uncle Bruce, he never called in sick. He's a generation of the fifties. He -hmm. worked for 35 years, never called in sick one day, Mm -hmm. you know, and when he started working, he was making a nickel an hour. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could say that in today's world, people don't have that same work ethic, but I don't think you could say that without, bringing up the other side of the equation and that other side of the equation is he got to play a major part in something and he was valued on top of being paid. He was part of the infrastructure. His opinion mattered. He was valuable. There's no loyalty on the other side. There's no loyalty on the other side. So if you have no loyalty from this institution, why would you, the, the employees of any corporation are a direct reflection of the leadership of that corporation and when you're moving CEOs in and out, cutting this, cutting that, strictly for profit, when you give your employee in a number, you take away their humanity. And, and, yeah, they're easier to get rid of. It's easier not to have any emotion towards them. But you're also doing that to yourself. You know, the, the, right. You're all incorporated in this thing. And what you do to the person on the bottom is a direct reflection not only of your leadership but of the company's values. And so if right. you devalue the person working, you devalue the service. You devalue that particular yourself. interest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: just look at all the companies that abandon their pension programs.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: In, in in favor of providing more profits to their shareholders.
0: Yeah. It tells you all you need to know. Yeah. And we're back at the, we're back at that consolidation of power that you spoke about where, you know, you, you consolidate everybody here and then the center can't hold, whether it's an explosion or it falls through the ground. At some point in time, it becomes so concentrated that, you know, it's, it's like a, it's like back in the day when you would go to Kmart and get a Slurpee, you know, all of a sudden you'd suck out all the strawberry, all the Coke and all those left is just ice. You know, there's no more <laughs> juice in there, man. <laughs> and you know what? Like I have, I've been reading, I, I reread Aldous Huxley's Bra- A Brave New World. Mm-hmm. And like, there's so much in there, but then you know what I did? Then I reread Aldous Huxley's book called The Island. Mm-hmm. Have you read the book, The Island? A long time ago. Okay, so I I had never read it. And actually, Cole Butler, if you're listening to this, thank you for the recommendation on there. Um, It's like the exact opposite of of Brave New World. Brave New World World seems to be Aldous Huxley's idea for the lower classes. And Mm -hmm. his book, The Island, tends to be a book about how the people in the ruling class should live. And you can imagine my joy when he started talking about the use of magic mushrooms throughout society i was like are you kidding me and he talks about giving magic mushrooms to kids at the age of 12 and he talks about all these rituals and like you know it's it's like oh yeah i would much rather be part of that class than this class down here you know and it hate him or love him that guy was a genius man the guy wrote just the 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 techniques he used to write and the structures that he used, like it's beautifully written and the ideas are really well put out there. And, you know, I don't, I guess I'm torn because I, I, I could see, and I don't know what this makes me, but I could see how you would want to structure society in the way of brave new world. And you can say that genetic engineering and you can say that, you know, the brain chip and all this idea of the singularity is really moving us towards brave new world. But I don't, I, I think that you could also have a parallel structure, the Terra Libre project that could be structured somewhat like the island. And you know, what, I am I'll send you a copy of that book. I might have a, a free one. And I think okay. it, I think it would help give you some ideas or that could be incorporated into that. Like there's some really cool stuff in there, but yeah, I thought that was weird. No one ever talks about the island. We always talk about Brave New World. Maybe we should talk more about the island instead of Brave New World.
1: Well, you know, the plight of the common versus the plight of the few, right? Yeah. Um, and I, it, it's a really interesting thing because, I, you know, as far as I can see, most everybody today is a slave. Yes. And yeah. that's such a loaded word. You get a whole lot of blowback for saying anything close to that. But, you know, if it's not the slavery of... of uh, governments, it's the slavery of religions. If it's not the slavery of religions, it's the slavery of, you know, culture. Yeah. Um, and when I was born into this world, it's not like somebody gave me a choice, a checklist of choice. It's like, choose your own adventure. What would you like? <laughs> it was, no, you're going to do this. You're going to like this. You're going to not like this. You're going to, you know, you're going to this school. You're going to study this. You're probably... I didn't have a choice in all of this. And then, you know, the assumption becomes is, oh, well, these people must have it all figured out. They must know what's right for me, right? And then as you get older and older, you go, nobody has anything figured out. So how are they, how are they, you know, indoctrinating people into these systems? How are they making these choices that are lifelong impact choices for all these people, willy-nilly, all because of, and it turns out the answer is, oh, because of some obscure text that most of those people can't even cite specifically. And that's a wild thing, is that we're we're so locked into these systems of rule uh, and most of the people, even the people who are doing the ruling can't even articulate why that is. Uh, and I think that's an important kind of question for people to kind of ask themselves, not, you know, is, is who rules me? You know, who am I a subject of? You know, the queen just died, right? Yeah. Uh, And and now you have a new king being proclaimed. And a lot of people are asking themselves these questions. We're like, my king? Hmm, that's an interesting thing. I never really thought about that before. I don't know if I want a king.
0: Did you see (laughs) the girl? There there were people in Britain that were holding signs that were like, I think the monarchy is a bad thing. They got put in jail. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and you start thinking about that and you start thinking about how fast this transition is happening. Like maybe that's the purpose of a quick transition is they don't want people thinking about the government in which they're ruled by, you know, if you look at a map of the territory owned by the United Kingdom, it's that they own 20% of the earth. Like that's Hmm. a lot of land that these people own and they're absentee landlords. Like, you know, Start thinking about that. Like, yeah, you know what? What the hell do these people even do? Why? Why do we need them? Like, you don't. Mm-hmm. You don't need them. And you know, another thing that adds on to this is this idea. Maybe you come with the term "false scarcity." There's not. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be false. It's like a a, a manufactured, scarcity. A manufactured scarcity. Mm-hmm. Like that is or at least seems to be the thing that puts people in a small mindset. You know, they used it in the internment camps in Germany. They used it in the internment camps in, in Japan. We use it in the internment camps we call prisons here, this yeah. idea of scarcity. Yeah. Oh, no, you have to have water. Oh, no, you don't have enough money. Oh, no, you don't have enough air to breathe. And then when that
1: scarcity is felt, it's usually attributed to somebody that they're trying to demean, demolish, or otherwise get rid of.
0: Yes. And that's the policy of the green agenda is this idea of scarcity. Like Mm -hmm. we have abundance, like the opposite Mm -hmm. of scarcity is abundance. And if we operate from the idea of abundance and look at the whole scare tactics of global warming, it's based on scarcity. You're running out of this stuff, man. We have to stop. You guys have too much, you have to stop. You, you, you greedy, selfish individual, how dare you? And I think that w- it takes us to this idea of mental slavery, scarcity, mental slavery. And I'll even try to tie it back to the Promethean flame like every single oh, one of us, every single one of us have this flame that burns inside of us, and it's this thing called creativity. And I know because only recently have I began to feel the flame burn inside me, this I, this flame of creativity. Yes, you can. I think Barack Obama said it beautiful. Yes, you can. You can start something. You can become a better you. You can inspire people around you. You can lift up your family from poverty. Yes, you can. But think about how scary that is to people in positions of authority who cannot do it, who have ruled by decree, who have been given the crown and the idea that they're rulers and they're better and they're smarter. No, they're not. They have just been given everything. And you as an individual on the lowest level have something that burns inside of you, this Promethean flame of creativity, and you can build it, man. You are smarter than you have ever thought possible. You can build up something That is so incredible if you just begin the journey with one step. And I think that that is what people in positions of authority are afraid of because that's an uprising. That's a revolution. And it's a revolution of one, like a forest fire that spreads to the next tree and the next tree. Pretty soon it becomes an unstoppable flame that can burn down anything. And that is what scarcity is meant to stop. That is what scarcity is meant to quench.
1: Absolutely, because there's also a realization on the other side of that coin is that oh, I do know how this works, and I do know I abused it.
0: Yes, yes. So
1: once other people realize how deplorable I've been, what sort of travesties I've been involved in, what sort of uprisings I was complicit with, or you know what I just signed off on because I got a couple bucks, yeah. they're not going to look at me favorably. You know those <laughs> those people. I mean, arguably, those people—they are incapable of looking into the black mirror. Those are the people I'd love to take on a wild mushroom trip, because you're that—that—that's going to be—that's going to be, be one. You know, they're going to see all of those things reflected back at them. Now, those people would be the last people to sign up for it because they are, at some level, aware of their transgressions against their
0: fellow human. Do you think that that is why? So many people in positions of authority have children that just grow up to be absolute messes, you know. And, and I'm not—I don't, I don't say that with Schadenfreude or like—I don't—I say that from a sad note. Like, so many people in positions of authority, children end up committing suicide or because the trust fund kid. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. because the, the parents have compromised so much of their values. The parents have compromised everything in life that matters, including their children. Like that, they're they're so willing to, or they have such of this complex of like I must show everyone how great I am. I must have the most wealth in the world. I must buy this island, and in doing so, they have given up everything in their life that matters. You know, I, I we have Larry Ellison that lives over here. He just bought Lanai, and I was yeah, reading, I heard about that. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, it's on some level. I can, okay, on some level, I can't imagine what it's like to have that much. Like The guy's got an aircraft carrier that he parks over here, like on, on Oahu. Sometimes you're like, mm-hmm. dude, one person owns that boat. And on mm-hmm. some level, you can't help but be like enamored by it, like, wow, what well, it's a, a marvel of wealth, it's a marvel Without of engineering technology,
1: right? Yeah. yeah,
0: and I, you know, I, I went to Lanai and stayed at the Four Seasons over there prior to him making that his house. <laughs> <laughs> the guy bought the Four Seasons and lives in it, you know, and, and on some level, you're like, wow, it's so crazy. But the story I read talks about Larry Ellison's he's got a number system and he numbers people like if you're a five you can't look at them if you're a four you can make eye contact but not for more than a few seconds and he's got this crazy number system and you know like his son is like a a two where you can talk to him but not about anything important and so like I just like what does it take like first off that's a pretty crazy system but what does it take for you to have to come up with a system like that where people can and can't even talk to you—is that because you're a
1: deplorable piece of shit?
0: Yeah, dude. I'm you sorry. Are.
1: There's, there's, yeah. We can, we can articulate the process of the system, but you're a deplorable piece of shit at the end of the day. <laughs> you and are. I'll, man. I'll, I'll take, I'll
0: take any one of those fuckers on stage anytime. Live. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and I, I see it here. Like, do you think at some point in time, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or Larry Ellison, at some point in time, do those guys ever just step back and be like? wow, I have so much, but I've caused so much chaos or I have caused so much heartache. Is there ever a moment where those people look at themselves and go, what the fuck am I doing? Oh, I'm sure. I, I, I would attest that those people probably lack any
1: sort of true happiness and joy in the ones. Um, mostly because you can't get to those positions without taking advantage of a grand number of people. Yeah, And and, and even unwillingly, but much more so willingly. you don't get into those positions without willingly taking advantage of people. Or, you know, even if that's, you know, uh, just the fact that you had kids and you decided that you weren't going to spend time with them today because this big deal that you needed to go close type idea, all of those things add up into that process. And that, that willing acknowledgement of I've decided to trade my humanity for profit I think probably keeps a good chunk of them up at night when they're not uh, drugged out in whatever cocktail of concoction that they're taking to fall asleep and maintain their their station in life. Uh, But if you look at them, when you look when you watch them on stage, these don't look like happy people. (laughs) You yeah. look at a guy like an Elon Musk, he's got nine kids with X amount of different women. He never looks happy. He always looks slightly confused and confuddled. But, you know, he's willing to throw a, a rave at 4 a.m. at his factory, knowing that, you know, what sort of harm that causes to the people that work for him and the, the consequences of such things, you know. And don't get me wrong. I am I love what he does in the technological space. Like SpaceX is awesome. Privatized yeah. placement, really cool stuff. At the end of the day, there's no admiration there. The admiration is for the human ingenuity, the, the technological iteration that it took to get there. Not the dude. And I think they probably know that at the end of the day too. When they look in the mirror, it's like, yes, eh, I'm not that dude, because most of them aren't either. You know, that's just a facade to begin with. And then you layer on everything else. I would I would argue most of those people do not find great happiness in life.
0: Yeah, I saw this doc, like on a similar note, I saw this documentary. I forgot what it was, but they were interviewing this guy and he was from, I think he was from either Connecticut or New Jersey. and, And I don't know what he did, but he was really wealthy. And in this documentary, they, they were asking him like, what is some of the things that keep you up at night? And like, I'll never forget about it. Cause he was, he was so honest. He goes, you know, it's a very uncomfortable feeling to know that my kids will never reach the level of success that I've reached. They'll never, they'll never be able to do it. You know, I was like, wow. Like that's, that's like, it just blew Like, and he said it like in this con, you know, you could tell that the guy that kept him up at night. Like it was like this rare show of consciousness and, you know, and and
1: how far off the path one can, can get.
0: Yeah. And he's just like, you know, I, my kids will never reach the level of success that I had. And there was this, the sound of loneliness in his words. Yeah. All of it. And like, I've stopped it and played it back like five times. And I was like, Hmm. wow. Like like that's every parent's dream is to think that, Hey, I can push my kid up one more level or, you know what? I hope that they achieve happiness in their life. Or I hope that they achieve this thing. And and here's this guy, like they'll never do it. (laughs) I was well, like, I, wow.
1: I think there's a key word in there too. He said success, right? Yes. This now, level of success. Right. What, what, How do you measure success? What's, well, what's
0: success to you, George? That's a great question. I, I think success to me is being able to look at yourself in the mirror and know that you are happy with the person you've become and that you have made the world better. And that you you can have a fuck as I'm saying it. There's no reason why these people couldn't say the same thing, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, but that that's success to me. My success to me is finding the beauty in life, even when my life seems hectic. Now that's a different
1: answer entirely.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. You you change that was (laughs) those are dichotomally different answers. (laughs)
0: I, I I don't I'm having a difficult time with, with that. And maybe that's why I am where I am.
1: Well, no, I think if if you and the reason I asked is because if you, were, if you go off and post something on LinkedIn, what is success? You're going to get as many answers as you get replies. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, you, you could take the Merriam-Webster's de- definition of success and, and, you know, or you could you try to articulate it yourself. But, yeah. The reality is, is success is a very independent and personal thing. Yeah. And you know, uh, and it's gonna be a reflection of of the values that we that we hold. It's gonna be which is which is a reflection of our relationships. It's a reflection of our of our walk through life, of all the the learned and unlearned. Um and you will never get a consistent answer for success, but yet. Meanwhile, all the people who are telling you what to do with your life say, this is how you become successful. But if you were to ask them the same question, they won't be able to articulate success either. It's a really interesting thing uh, because I watched somebody go around and interview, you know, people from, you know, like C-level, C-suite stuff. What's success to you? What's success to you as part of this startup program? And the answer is just, they cracked me up. Because most people tried to start with the, you know, uh, exactly where you started, you know, uh, you know, I want this for my family, I want the, you know, blah blah blah, and then they were trying to think about it, and they're like, I don't know if that actually made me happy, right? Yeah, that's that's yeah. the that's the second one, and then you're like, so success has to include happiness in it. Yeah. So what would make me happy, and and then they start, to be, so beauty becomes a part of the conversation. Yeah. You know, uh, you know relationships, uh, imagination, creativity um and but usually always the second opinion never included anything about monetary or profit or any of those types of ideas it was all about the personal and relationship experience it
0: yeah okay so that makes me wonder like you know i had a conversation with my wife the other day and i was telling her how much like i hated the queen and she's like well, I didn't say I hated the queen, but I was like, you know what? Like, what do these people do? Yeah. And my, 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 my words to her were something like this person was given everything, like literally given everything. And when they look, yeah. And then when I look back at the accomplishments that people were saying is like, well, they were the longest, she was the longest living monarch. And (laughs) she was one of the richest monarchs. And on top of that, her face on the most money. And -hmm. like, it, it just made me so disgusted. Mm-hmm. And 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 maybe jealous because like I'm like, fuck! Oh. No one gave me that. No one gave me that. I you know what I could do with that? I could make the world better with that. And like, but no one gave it to me, so I've, I felt like this anger. And even at, at Zuckerberg, if it, or, 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 if or if
1: it was if, given to you, you wouldn't be able to make the same decisions you have. Thinking about it in the context that you're thinking about it. Yeah. You know, that's it, it's an interesting thing. You know, it, it goes back to our conversation on okay. Sunday. You know, what would you change about your life? Uh, you know, if you could, well, I wouldn't change anything because I wouldn't be this guy. Yeah. And you know, I'm okay with this guy. I've, I've I've made my I've made my peace with a lot of life. I've found joy. You know, I have found happiness. Um, so I'm going to be very hard pressed to change anything, even my most deplorable acts in Life. Uh, but if I was just given everything. I would have never, you know, made those same decisions. I would have never been in many of the same environments to make those decisions. And eventually, you know, you get to the nurture nature aspect of this, right? If you're born into this environment of royalty, you are, you're, you're in this position, you're, you're going to be disconnected from any, the aspect of someone who has to struggle through life to go up and, you know, they don't know where they're going to get their next meal sometimes. You've never had that experience. You've never had that experience. There's no way you can understand what that person's thought process is, what they're willing to do to get that meal, especially if it's not for them, it's for the child. And then yet you will be the quickest to condemn them for that action. And so, you know, there's, in, in this kind of, this kind of goes back to the conversation of, you know, equality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think when you enable the equality of opportunity that's one of the mechanisms that you can utilize to provide a foundation for people to find the path for themselves but if you thrust people into these trust fund kids and these you know, uh, old family monies they're never and this is why a lot of them end up suicidal or just pieces of shit in the world is because they never have that perspective they never and they never will Even if they decided to run away from their family and try to go live in a foreign country with no money, eventually they know somebody will come pick them up if they pick up a phone. It's not the same thing. You know, it's very different when you have nobody to call, right? Like, I can't go call my mother right now, and I'm not going to get money today. There's not going to be food unless I figure something out. And in figuring those things out, in those hardships, you know, that's what you know, that perseverance breeds a uh, personality. It, it breeds our ability to understand these situations, not just in ourselves, but in others, right? And that breeds empathy. You don't get that when you're just thrust into these things.
0: That's really well put, man. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me, you know, when you, when, when you look at it from that angle and when I listen to what you said, it makes me feel silly for being so angry and upset with people like Ellison or Zuckerberg and like but i still am you know and I, it's probably unwarranted it's not fair and it's not right and it makes me look at myself a little bit more critical like why why are you so mad at them man like are you, are well, you really jealous of them you know
1: no you're mad because you you honestly do think and i i've gone through and i still go through bouts of this but i yeah. you know i've come out the other side quite a few times too uh is you think that in that position, given said resources, said influence, the ability to talk to an audience, my goodness, what good could I do? First, this schmuck talking about (laughs) fucking the metaverse? Oh, (laughs) God, you got to fucking kill me. Jeez. You know, like, so I get it. I I completely empathize with that because I feel the same way plenty of times too. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, but he's just a clown, man. And
0: you know what, too? Like, on, on some level... I can't help but think. Well, they're there and you're not, so they're better than you. And, th- and that There's part bothers that's not me. True. That's not true. <laughs> Why not? That's, Why that's is that not true? Um,
1: you know, circumstance is something that you can't uh, factor into that equation. Uh, you didn't. You didn't have a Alphabet Agency come supply you hundreds <laughs> of thousands of dollars in funding money to develop this app that was already developed. Right. <clears throat> you can't replicate that. Right. So, you know, to, to put yourself in comparison to that is a silly endeavor.
0: Comparing At the end people, of the day. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, your mother always told you, never compare yourself to others. Right, um, right. You know, unfortunately we're you're kind of, we have to compare ourselves to others. That's kind of what culture is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not that you shouldn't compare yourself to others. It's that you should compare yourself to others, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't stop there that comparison should be a reflection effort. that comparison should be, you know, well, in this case, why do I feel? And you know what, if you're really honest with yourself, because I've been really honest with myself a couple of times, it's because I was lazy and I didn't, I didn't work as hard as I should have in this instance. And I know it and it still bugs me. And I think if I did, I could have done this and you blow up this situation in your head where (laughs) it's this fanciful thing. And then you're like, (laughs) Fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it is. It's it's a reflective process. And I think the more we are reflective about that and honest with ourselves about that process, you know, you gain the ability to move beyond it. And when you move beyond these things, I think that starts to begin the recipe for happiness and joy in life.
0: Yeah. I, I think that the ultimate end point of that self-reflection is well, I'm here and I like where I am, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but it's, it's really, I think it's important to go through that, what we just went through right there. And I know I do it to myself quite a bit sometimes and it takes days sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and sometimes it can be a dark spot, man. Sometimes I do get angry and I get sad and, you know, I, I got to pull myself out of there. And that's usually where like the, the giant mushroom trip comes in. And it's like, okay, come here, dummy. Yeah, good job. You thought about all that. Now let me show you this other side of it. Mm-hmm. But it's important to, to go through those ideas. Why do I feel this way? Why is that not fair? Why is that fair? Or what could I do that was different? And those are really, I think that's part of growing, right? Like, yeah. co- is, is confronting these ideas, confronting these feelings of inadequacy and coming through the other side and saying, Okay. well, now I'm here. Now, what are you going to do? You thought about all this. You're here. Here's where you're at. Here's what you have. Now, what are you going to do? And it's what you do from that jumping point forward that defines who you can be or what you can be. And it's I think that's part of the reward you get is by asking yourself the hard questions.
1: I think, you know, we find the path to enlightenment through reflection. Yeah. And we maintain our ability to see the path through that same reflection.
0: And it, that's the problem that, that narcissist had, right? <laughs> when he saw his reflection, <laughs> he just loved it.
1: <laughs> I'm going to
0: stay we'll, right here. <laughs> Look at that handsome devil down there in that <laughs> water. He <laughs> could do no wrong. Yeah. It's interesting how the idea of myth can, you know, help steer us in a direction that is beneficial to, ourselves and our community and
1: well I think in a way that that that's what myth kind of underlies is the things that get exemplified into that zeitgeist of mm-hmm. mythos throughout antiquity are you know they're they're metaphors for life. They're yeah. they're the you know the hardships of the world at the time reflected in a story.
0: Yeah they're the they're the hardships of all time. You know that sometimes it, those word, myths yeah know. There, we're, we're really no different, you know, we're really no different from a psychological point today than we were, you know, thousand years ago. We still have these, you, know, you can still read Timaeus today and be like, oh man, I never thought about it like that, you know, mm-hmm. and there's still so much information in there that we can mine or, you know, you can still go to the allegory of the cave and find out that you are the one seeing illusions, you know, and you're still in chains, or maybe you've escaped the cave, but you haven't gone back in to tell your friends about it yet. You know, there's...
1: <laughs> well said.
0: Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to think about. Benjamin George, I have, I'm having an absolute blast, man. As always, time goes by way too fast but I feel like I'm emerging a better person, man. And I, I really enjoy the conversation and I, you I,
1: well.
0: yeah, it's, it's fun. And uh, so what do you got coming up? What, where can people find you and what are you excited about?
1: Uh, Benjamin C. for everything. I have actually started recording some monologues, George. So our oh. podcast is coming. Uh, when when
0: are you going to book me on the, when, when can I come on?
1: Uh, so end of the month is still my target date. I'm just trying to build okay. some content pipeline. Right. Um, but I will actually be, I'm going to uh, read every chapter of the book and release them as their own individual episodes. So the book nice. will eventually be free for everybody in audio format. Um, Cause I wrote the thing not to make money, but to share the information. Uh, so I'm happy for that. I'm look, really looking forward to that. Uh, and the Tara Lieber um, Terry Libre project will have a whole lot of new stuff dropping probably at the end of this week actually so things move slowly but surely
0: yeah absolutely man it's it's a beautiful process and I enjoy getting to be a small part of it and watch it and and see it manifest into the world and see it released into the world so I'm I'm super excited for you and the project and our conversation so I will be back tomorrow with our friend Ranga and Lord knows what happens when you get the East and West together and we start talking about some crazy ideas. So I'm looking forward to talking with him and um, some big guests coming up. And I hope everybody can learn a little bit about themselves by listening to us talk about some of the problems we have in our life and some of the things we see in the future and and saw in the past. So that's what I got. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being part of the True Life podcast. We will check back in with you next Wednesday. Aloha. All right. Our six seconds of awkward. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now.